Amen, Vertical. You can take a seat, and it is my honor and my privilege to introduce a really good friend of mine and one of the biggest Baylor Bear fans that I know. I only text with a couple of people every day, and Jeff is one of them, and we text about Baylor football almost every day. It's almost every day. And I think actually we have a picture up here of Jeff at the Alamo Bowl in 2011. Do we have that? Yes, this is Jeff. So this is proof that he has been a Baylor fan longer than most in this uh, place, because this is five years ago. But actually, to prove that he has been a Baylor fan longer than everybody in this place, we have another picture. Uh, This is Jeff. We can zoom in on that. That's Jeff right there. Green and gold shirt with his name and green lettering. That is hardcore. Three years old going to a Baylor game. So please help me uh, welcome Jeff Mangum. (laughs) Well played, Logan. Well played. Hello, everybody. Um, Yeah, I love that shirt because in case um, anyone didn't know my name, it was there for everyone to to learn. Um, All right. Good to see everyone. Great to be here. Um, And what Logan says is true. I I love this university. I love um, uh, everything about it. And and, and kind of full disclosure here, um, I did not go here. And so at first, you're like, yeah, I'm all in. And then I just said that, and you think I'm a fake. Uh, Let me kind of just give a little bit of a backstory to that. Um, my mom and dad did not go here. Uh, I am not even sure at what point they just adopted Baylor as their school, uh, but they did. And I have memories of growing up uh, wearing that shirt and um, my parents playing on vinyl before it was like, like the cool thing to start doing again back in the day, um, the good old Baylor line, and it was just playing on repeat. And I thought that was a normal thing that happened in home. So I would visit our friends' houses out I didn't understand why their parents weren't playing uh, school songs. I thought it was normal. It wasn't normal, uh, but I loved it. And so I have grown up a uh, tremendous Baylor fan. I actually went uh, to the University of Mary Hart in Baylor, kind of the sister school. And the reason I went was to go play basketball. And because the coach told me the girl-to-guy ratio was 5-to-1, I was in. Heard from the Lord, went. Uh, and so uh, uh, that was my school for the better part of um, four, five, six and a half years. So um, that's my experience in a nutshell. Love being here. Absolutely love being here. And, um, and, and maybe a little bit later on, it'll kind of make some sense of even how special tonight is for me and being uh, with you guys. So hopefully that kind of comes into uh, more of a full picture for you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Um, I want us to read something from, from Matthew chapter 7. And, um, and it's not a passage that um, is new to Vertical this semester. It's actually a passage that was taught a few weeks ago. And I had the privilege of, of watching uh, uh, the video of this being taught. It was so good. Um, and yet, with this text, as with any other passages, there's just layers upon layers upon layers that you can find. And so I'm hoping that this might be kind of even a part two to, if you were here a few weeks ago, to what you heard from Matthew chapter 7. And I want to be reading from verse 24 uh, through 27. We're actually going to spend some time in Philippians um, after this, but I want this to be the text that kind of undergirds um, everything for us. Uh, let's, Let's just read this. Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27, Jesus speaking, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He might remember this being taught. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell. The floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. 
Now, um, I'm, a, uh, I'm a preacher's kid, so um, kind of all I know is being around sermons, and, and, um, and I, I, for the better part of my life, that's, that's what I know. And, and just so you know, like, um, uh, I, I just turned 40, so I got a little old school in me, um, but for the better part of four decades, I've just heard or taught sermons in some way, shape, or form for better or worse, all right? And I feel like I have heard or even taught this passage, just, I, I can't even count how many times. Uh, growing up, I felt like just time after time after time, hearing this passage, and uh, there's, there's different ways to even look at it and both be true. Uh, the primary way I've heard it taught, and is absolutely correct, and y'all were just blessed a few weeks ago to hear this taught this way, is during hardship to find your feet secure in the gospel. In the gospel of Jesus, and no matter what comes your way, you won't be uh, blown away and tossed to and fro. You'll be stable in your soul in the midst of it all. That is the primary way it is read and taught, and it is absolutely correct. Yet there's even more to it that I think has become um, another layer for us as Christians, especially in these last, I don't know, um, I'll throw out some numbers, 10, 15 years. And, and the reason I say that is because um, there's a really popular gospel that's described as the prosperity gospel. And it's described as um, if you love Jesus, then it kind of secures you from difficulties compared to the rest of the world. And I, I even grew up thinking that. I was never taught that. My dad never taught me that. But I think it was just kind of this, this belief I had that the more I grew in faith, the more I surrendered, the more I did everything these songs said I should be doing, that I would somehow find some kind of shielding around me to protect me from things happening. Now, I thought secondly about my, my heart being secure. I thought primarily that when I grow in my faith, that I would avoid things. Does that make sense? And, and I, don't, I don't know that we always believe that, but I think in the back of our minds, uh, it's kind of an underlying belief so much so that when we grow in our faith and hardship comes, we are utterly shocked. And we kind of have this response in us wondering, why is this happening? And it's more than, God, what are you doing in this? It's more of a shock like, why would this be happening to me? It makes sense when I hear things happening that are difficult, sufferings, hardship, and everything in between happening to others, but I'm not really sure why it's happening to me. Or we start thinking, oh, I know why it's happening to me because I look at the way I live and the way I think. I look at my motivations. I know my heart. I look at myself in the mirror. I know why this is happening. It is punishment and it is wrath. I just want to say something really clear. Um, the way the New Testament in particular teaches us. Now, we see this in the Old and the New, but we see this in Hebrews when it describes the way that God views us and deals with us as a father deals with his child. That it is not the word wrath, but it is the word discipline. And those are completely distinct and different terms. We like to put those two together saying his punishment, his wrath, and his discipline. That word discipline does not belong with those. Because wrath means pouring out anger and paying you back. Discipline is something that is always, from Genesis to Revelation, every single time it is restorative. Every single time. And so I've been married um, a little over 16 years. 
Um, I have three little hobbits at home. My, my oldest, uh, she's about to turn 11, and she is sassy. Uh, my son, Tyler, he is six, and he is just smooth. He's a smooth cat. I look up to him. And then uh, Claire is our four-year-old who's just kind of, um, kind of the baby of the family. And my, my wife keeps saying, if we could have more kids like her, well, we should just like have a whole lot. And I'm like, I don't think we parent her. I think she just, we get tired and we don't deal with her. That's why we think she's so easy. So that's our three. And I confuse anger, wrath, and punishment with, with discipline all the time. And, and I would love to say as a dad that what I'm doing in times of rebellion or hardship is trying to restore their little hearts to understand the gospel. But I would say nine out of 10 times, that's not what's happening. Nine out of 10 times, I, I'm, I'm tired. Uh, I have a comfort idol that I love to embrace. And they get in the middle of, uh, of me embracing that more often than not, especially late at night. And so when I respond to them, it is rarely as how do I restore them to the gospel so they can see grace and discipline, and then as a loving father, uphold them with the care of the gospel. I don't think that way very often. I know I should, but I don't. So I get why we get confused when we go through things. And listen, I want to redefine suffering just a little bit for us because um, suffering for a lot of us, we start thinking, okay, in our lifetime, there's going to be three or four pivotal moments and things that are happening that are difficult, and those will be considered sufferings. Those are true, but it's much, much wider of a scope than that. Uh, I think it's about 95 plus percent of our life could come under the umbrella of difficulty, hardship, and suffering. I don't think it's just these pivotal moments back when I was 16 and when I was 24 and then when I was 38. I don't think it's just that. When we treat sufferings like that, then of course we'll be shocked and surprised. But when you read about the way Paul describes hardships, and with the leadership here, we were talking about this a few moments ago. In 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, when Paul describes what it means to be the center of God's will, he talks about all the hardships he goes through. He talks about being in danger from friends, robbers, danger from rivers, so I guess floods. I mean, he's in a creek. Um, danger from out, sea, out at sea. So he keeps getting shipwrecked. He keeps getting on boats and they keep breaking apart. Um, uh, he's been left for dead by being stoned repeatedly. People leaving him for dead. He's been lashed with uh, the whip 40 minus one, so 39 times. Uh, he goes on and on about all the sufferings, but then he finishes with this one particular suffering where he says, and not to mention all the anxiety that I carry for all the churches. So he's not talking about abuse. He's not talking about um, physical harm. He's talking about just the unsettled angst that is in him. Now you tell me if we are a culture that can identify with the word anxiety. It is almost, we don't even, we could have a bad day. I'm just anxious. I have anxiety everywhere. That's the only word we seem to know anymore. So I would say every time you walk through insecurity, trying to fit in, you don't feel like you fit in. No one gets you. You're misunderstood. Cynicism, doubt, faith issues, depression. I can identify with all those and then some. Those fall under the category of hardship and suffering. So then when we step back a little bit and look at our life, it's not we had these four pivotal moments in our life where we went through suffering. It really is like, I feel like more often than not throughout my day, I'm upholding some kind of hardship whether I should be or shouldn't be. And maybe, maybe you can identify with that. And so what I want us to do tonight is simply look at difficulty, hardship, suffering, in maybe a unique way. 
I don't just want us to admit yet that it happens. First, I want us to see what Jesus actually says. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter if you love him or not, or your feet are in and secure in the rock or not, you're still going to have the rain fall. You're still going to have the floodwaters rise and the wind is still going to blow, regardless. And that's the thing no one explicitly told me. It was left up to me to assume it. And I did not assume that. And so I was utterly shocked. But Jesus is letting everyone know, yes, your feet need to be secure. And this is what it means to withhold and withstand. But make no mistake, whether you follow me and love me or don't, you're going to go through ongoing suffering. So that's one of the first things we have to kind of come to grips with saying, okay, that's true. So then how do I deal with it? Like, how do I, from a day-to-day um, process, deal with this being true? And so Paul does a really good job of helping unpack this for us. Uh, turn with me a little bit further to the right in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to uh, be in chapter 1 just a little bit, and then we're going to flirt in chapter 2 just a tad. Uh, we don't have time to go through all of it, but I want to step back and give you about a 10,000-foot view of the context of what Paul is teaching, and then start addressing what we typically do when we go through hardship, difficulty, suffering, you put the word in there, that's fine. What we typically do and, and why we need to look at it just a little bit differently, all right? Look at it just a little bit differently. All right, if your Bible's cool, uh, Philippians chapter 1, going to look at verse 12 through 14. And then we're going to jump to verse 29 in just a moment. Let's read what Paul is describing as he writes the church um, of Philippi, speaking to the Philippians and certainly to you and I. He says this in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the imperial guard, the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So let's just push pause real quick. So the context of what we're seeing for all the Philippians is hardship, difficulty, and suffering. Now, he's in prison, which is where he spends most of his time, it seems. And he's writing letters, and what he's trying to convey to this church is not only am I going through this season of drought and loneliness. Like, can we just put ourselves emotionally in the place of Paul? Because sometimes we read Genesis Revelation, and we see these people as mythological creatures and not humans that have psyches and emotions. He is lonely. Like we have an idea of Paul waking up going, I shall not be lonely. I trust the Lord. And I don't know if he said shall back in the day, but that's what we think he says all the time. But most of his letters are talking about how he's in pain. He feels alone. He needs encouragement. He needs hope. He needs someone to uphold him. He, he talks about the need for church and community and one anotherness because he lacks it so much. So everything he teaches is because it comes from a place of pastoral empathy. So when he's describing something, he's not doing it as a robot outside of the sphere of understanding. He's trying to say, this is where I'm at. I feel fractured, splintered, broken, and an absolute mess. And here's what I'm seeing happen in the midst of it all. He says, in the midst of my imprisonment, in the midst of my doubts, in the midst of my questioning, in the midst of me praying, God, what in the world are you doing? Something has stirred up in not only me, but the very ones who have been beating me, and persecuting me, and something about how I'm dealing with it is causing a turning of soul in these men. Now, I don't think it means that he is 
praying 24 hours a day. I don't think it means he never doubted. I don't think it means he's dealing with his hardship in just a better way and more positive and putting his head down and just grinding forth and just pushing through it. I think what he's doing is being honest and calling out to God and begging him for vision, mercy, compassion, and hope. And somewhere along the way, these other men start noticing that he's not breaking, but instead he's running to the security of the gospel. And it changes them. Not only that, it's starting to uphold those outside of that prison. That those who were afraid to speak with boldness now have boldness. And now they're being upheld. And so he's describing hardship and the way to deal with it, right? Then verse 29. He says, for it has been granted to you. Now, and now he's talking to them. He's saying, here's my story right now. And so I'm writing you from a place of empathy. I get what you're going through. And, and, and the, the church of Philippi, they're going through sufferings, hardships. They can't get jobs because of their faith. Um, their families are being torn apart because of their faith. But also there's disease. Also there's uh, mental illness. Also there's loneliness. There's the normal things that you and I would say are real. They have the same things. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, um, there are different things you can describe about that word suffer for his sake or that term suffer for his sake. One of the ways to look at that is saying they are martyrs. And without question, we see that in the New Testament. But I wanna be very clear. That is not the context of what he's describing. His scope of his description of what they're going through is so much more than that. He's not just simply saying, hey, when you get opposed because of your faith, hold strong to the gospel. He's saying, when you wake up and you doubt that God has any forgiveness or love for you, when you wake up and you actually question the motivations of every friend that you say you have, when you wake up and you wonder, should I have gone here or somewhere else? When you wake up and you start pondering about the divorce of your mom and dad from four years ago and you can't get rid of it. When you wake up and you start feeling ill and it's repeated and you can't break free from it. He goes, understand that that sovereignly has been granted to you. And that word granted is weird because it's not a word that's um, uh, pushed upon you or thrown at you. It literally is a word that you would describe around Christmas. It is synonymous with gift. And I'm not saying you and I should sit here going, oh God, thank you for all the sufferings I have. You really are good to me in that way. I do think it means saying, God, there are two things I know about your character, many more, but here's two. You're sovereign over my life and your character is absolutely good. You're not one or the other and you don't take away from one for the other. So if that's true, then there's no part of my life that I have to sit here going, are you cruel to me? Have you forgotten about me? Do you kind of like care about me with a JV version of care? Have I done something to offend you? Do you have that fragile of a personality, God, that I've done something to offend you? We don't have to think that. We get to step back going, I don't know all the purposes of why this is upon me, whether it's a suffering that has come upon us or even one that we brought upon ourselves. But Paul says, He's granting it to us so that it can be used for a particular reason. Now, here's what I want you to hear more than anything tonight. There is no other platform, none, no other platform in your life from start to finish that gives you an opportunity to declare and demonstrate 
the mercy, compassion, love, and kindness, and power of Christ than in your suffering. No other one. There is no greater stage you have. None. I don't care if it's a magnificent stage of suffering or a minute one where you're saying, I'm just having an off day. That's still under the umbrella of hardship. There's no greater stage. Because when you have health, when you have um, confidence, which who really has that? We just fake it better than one another, uh, each other. Who really has that kind of internal security about friendships and feeling like they belong and have their five-year plan planned out? When you lack those things and you are honest about them and people are given insight to that and you cling to the promises of Jesus, that is a stage unlike any other stage. That's why Paul says, the reason you're listening to me, because I'm in jail. If I wasn't, my letter would not mean as much. It's because I've dealt with all these things you actually can believe. I'm not just saying it because things are well. It's because I'm having to believe it and he's doing a work in me. And it's been granted to you that your faith would grow and others would come to faith through your hardship. He's telling us, think differently through it. Not put your head down and just push through it and be a good soldier. That's not the gospel. That's some weird religion that, that's self-motivated. Instead, he's saying, we're going to suffer. So what does that mean for us in the midst of it for others? All right, let's move to chapter two. Uh, we don't have a lot more to read, and then we're going to unpack quite a bit of this, and then we'll be done, and then we'll just have a great night. Verse one through four of Philippians chapter two. Now, listen to how he pivots. Chapter one is, here's what I'm going through. Here's what you're going to go through. It's been granted to you. And then chapter two, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse three, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, and that's that's the word you need to underline or circle or, you know, do little hearts around, ladies. Whatever. Humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, the reason this should stand out is not just because those four verses. A lot of us have probably read those four verses or heard them. But it's in the context of chapter 1 and chapter 2 being tied together. What we'd love to do is read portions of chapter one and maybe take a verse or two of those and say, here's what I'm going to put on the wall in my house when I get older. Or chapter two, here's how we should treat each other. But listen closely. Paul is saying in the midst of things not going well, do not give in to the temptation to value yourself over everybody else. He's actually saying in the midst of your hardship, consider other people first. And that goes against everything that we want to do. Am I right? That is not the way I typically gravitate toward response. Because what we'll do is we'll look at chapter two and say, see, Paul is simply saying we should love one another, care for each other, value each other, and have humility. No, he's going beyond that. He's saying when you feel like you're all alone and no one gets you and you're isolated and you have cynicism that you can pursue and no one actually accepts you and no one pursues you and you feel like you're on an island, in those moments, value everyone more than yourself. Now, you tell me how hard that sounds. It's easier for me just to read chapter two in the first four verses by itself. Because when I'm doing well, I might be able to possibly tackle one of those verses. But in the midst of my failings, in the midst of my cynicism and doubts, I'm supposed to care about you more than me? Probably not. 
Now, he uses this word humility, which is the word that we all love to pray for and declare, oh God, would you make me humble? We love that term. I've heard that prayed so much. I have prayed that prayer. God, would you just bring humility to my life? I want to be godly, right? I want to give me humility as a father, as a husband, as a son, as a pastor. I want humility. Now, that word humility sounds so great, but it actually comes from the word humble, which comes from the word humiliation. I've literally never heard that prayed. I've never heard a person say, God, it's 8 o'clock. Too late for my first class, but... I'm asking that you would somehow just humiliate me in front of my family, my friends, this university, in any way you want to. Use me that way. I've never heard that, that prayed. But we've prayed for humility. And what Paul's saying is humiliation in that way simply means I feel misunderstood. I have all the reasons in the world to view other people as either enemies or people that I should shun or put up a shield against, but instead, I'm going to come to them and consider them more valuable than myself. The only person that could possibly do that is someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That is not something a man or a woman can will themselves to do. It's evidence that you're living a surrendered life. And look, can I just say, uh, we, none of us do it well. So this is not about, do you do it well? It's about, this is what's the call in front of us. Now, here's the temptation that we typically have. Uh, one of two directions when we go through hardship. And I want you to just kind of think about this. W- what is hardship for you? I, it doesn't have to be something huge, like a 10 out of a 10. It might be like what you would compare, like a two out of a 10, and it just doesn't compare to other people's sufferings. Don't worry about that. For you, what is that thing or those things, all right? Like right now. Now, the typical thing that we like to do, one of two directions we either move into self-preservation or self-exaltation. So if I go through a season where I feel that my wife doesn't get me, um, where my kids are just not loving, where I don't feel like my church is encouraging me enough, where I don't feel like my friends are actually even caring about me enough, what I typically go to is some kind of place of depression. I've battled depression since I was 11 years old. I've gone through five major bouts where I've had to drop classes. I've had to take two months uh, of sabbaticals to deal with my broken psyche, all right? And so I'm still in that place. I'm still, I'm still that guy. I'm still a fragile man, all right? So if you think I like fix things, I'm still broken, splintered, and I'm a mess. Aren't you encouraged? So that's typically how I go. Now, what I typically do in those moments is I go to either self-preservation, which means I'm going to push everyone away. I'm going to preserve me having to care or be hurt anymore. Can anyone identify with this? I'll take your silence as a resounding yes. Um, I'm going to block you out, take care of myself, and I won't come out of my shell until I have somehow brought healing to myself and feel confident enough to trust someone again. Self-exaltation, or self-preservation. So basically what you're doing is you're holding yourself in. You think you're keeping people out, you're actually just holding yourself in, and you're going to be downright miserable. Self-exaltation, we also do. It's typically where you go through something, and then you notice, you say things like this. Why are they not texting me like they used to when I was going through this at the beginning? Did they stop caring about me? How come they stopped calling? How come no one's inviting me in the midst of my pain, to lunch. You used to always do that. 
Oh, they're going to go on vacation. Oh, it's spring break. I'm glad you get a spring break because my soul doesn't get a spring break because I'm going through hardship. How come they don't contact me anymore? And look at the way they laugh and they just enjoy each other. They've totally forgotten about me. And we become absolute crazy cynics, don't we? And we create these stories of how we are different than them and they aren't caring about us. And then we start to raise ourselves above them saying, I judge you and I judge you and I judge you and I'm the center of the universe. How could you not bend your whole life around me and all my needs? And that's typically how we deal with our hardships. Hide or exalt. And what Paul's trying to say is, what if we fight to do neither? What if, and make no mistake, it's a fight. It's not something you hear and go, hmm, that's a good word from the Lord. I'm going to become that now. It is, I have to fight for this every hour of the day. When I feel this way, when I'm going through this, when I, I feel the oppression of these things, oh God, would you give me a heart that actually, even for a moment, considers somebody else? Oh God, would you do that? Because there's something unique that happens in your hardship when you consider someone else. It makes people take notice because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any kind of sense. So here's how we're going to spend these last 10 minutes. I use that 10 minutes uh, very loosely. Um, I want us to look at the three typical things that we do in the midst of all this, all right? And, 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 and really what we should be doing uh, in the midst of these kind of seasons, times, hardships, anything like that, all right? All right, we have a, a few temptations during our suffering and hardship, right? First one is we love to consult with self more than anybody else. And here's what that means. We love to try to become our own therapist, our own self-motivator, and we try to convince ourselves of what is true. And the problem is we're just not very wise or smart to do that. We don't have insight to our own soul the way God does, but we try to counsel. So what we do is we just try to consult with self. We don't seek out opinions of others. We don't seek out community, which we'll talk about in a minute. We just try to ask ourselves. tell me you haven't done this at night before you go to bed. What do you think about that? Well, like, what's going on? I think it's that. They're horrible. I think that's the Antichrist. I'm not sure. I don't trust any of them. And then you just start believing weird things. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor from many decades ago, um, he talks about this. Listen to what he says. He says, most of our unhappiness in life is because we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. We sit around and we grumble and we murmur, and we listen to ourselves grumble and murmur instead of saying, self, God will take care of you. Self, God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who love him. Self, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Self, cast your cares upon the Lord, and he will care for you. Self, God is in control. Now, you notice what's unique about this. This is not called self-help. Self-help is when you say things about self. Self, you have a dynamic personality. I mean, maybe you don't. (laughs) You ever consider that? Self, these are the worst listeners in the world. Maybe they're not. Maybe you just are. (laughs) Self, they don't get you because you're godlier. Maybe not. Self, they're all selfish, but maybe, maybe you're the one battling that selfish. That, see, that's what we typically do. What, what Jones is saying is you have to preach the scriptures to yourself. 
You have to preach the word of God to yourself. You have to soak up the word so you know what to tell yourself. Like how many times have I had to go to Psalm 73 when I look at everyone else and go, man, they get their Sundays off with their families. I've had a Sunday with my family, like a normal family in 16 years. Why am I doing 35 hours of studying for a sermon that people are going to forget three days later? I just want to go out. I want to enjoy myself. Why do I have to care about all these convictions? Can I just have like one month where I just don't care? Just one month where I don't care. I have these all the time. And Psalm 73 is Asaph saying, you know what? I look around and I'm envious of everyone. And I want to be like them because it looks like everyone has life figured out and I'm a mess and I'm supposed to not be a mess. And halfway through, he comes to the realization, oh, but I'm reminded of how good God is to my soul and how he's the only one that satisfies and he's the only one to cling to. I have to go to Psalm 73 all the time because I am a cynic about my own faith every stinking day. You know how many times before Sunday morning, before two, three, or four sermons that day, that I am absolutely convinced today's the day they all realize after 19 years of preaching, I'm a hack. I'm an absolute hack. Maybe I am, but I'm convinced of it every Sunday. My poor wife is like, all right, are we doing the hack thing? Okay, go through it. Because she knows how I'm going to respond at noon. God moved in power. She goes, yep, this is kind of the routine you do. Like, I, I, I have to be reminded of the word of God that I'm not the one in charge of this. His hand is in charge of the word of God going forth. I have to fight to believe these things. And I typically don't. We have to preach to ourselves. Secondly, what we typically do is we avoid biblical community. We typically avoid biblical community. Um, This is pretty self-explanatory. We don't just like hide in our dorms or apartments. What we do like to do is um, when people ask us how we're doing, we love saying things like, man, I'm doing great. God's been good. How about you? And then if we're feeling really frisky, we'll call them brother or sister. And because if you say, doing great, brother, it's like this, oh, they're really, they're doing very well. So we have learned the perfect art of being around community and not being in it. So we're very crafty that way. And what we typically do is avoid biblical community. Third, almost done here. Um, We spend a majority of our time just begging God to take away the pain. Um, I'm not saying that that's not something we should pray. I'm not saying that's not something he wants to do. I'm not saying that that's not something we should hope for. I'm saying that he might not. There are times he just might not. And so instead of like the goal of life being God, the goal is that you would just take away this hardship. Maybe the thing keeping you most humble is the hardship. Maybe. Maybe. I would say... um, uh, these past three or four months have been really unique for me. Um, on July 6th, my, my dad passed away, and it's the first time I've dealt with someone close to me who's passed. I've had cousins, I've had aunts and uncles, um, I've had friends. But my dad was true best friend at my house four or five days out of the week, a functional second dad to my, to my kids. Um, I came home one day, and he was working in our yard, and I, and I found him. I did CPR for seven, eight minutes. I still remember every lonely minute of that. Um, I, on the way up here today, drove 10 miles to the east of Temple to visit his grave. Um, it is fresh like it happened yesterday. I hate everything about it. 
A buddy of mine was reminding me, he's like, man, when you see death face to face, it's the culmination of what the Bible describes sin to be, death. You should hate it. I hate it. I weep. I sit in my uh, very comfortable leather chair in my bedroom in the corner when I just want to seclude. I doubt. He loved Jesus. I know that. He uh, had such a heart for the gospel. I know that. I have all these promises I can hold on to, but I have been fragile and still am. Season tickets to every football game. My brother has four tickets, 20 um, seats behind. My dad had one, (laughs) true introvert. And he would be in the corner with that green seat. And I just walked by it a couple games ago and just saw it. There it is empty. And it just rushes back to me. I hate it. I'm miserable about it. If you give me five minutes of silence, I'm going to ponder on it. Here's the only way I can become the kind of person that trusts in the gospel in the midst of it and actually consider anyone besides myself in any kind of moment. It's only when I preach the gospel to myself. Otherwise, I'm done. I am done. Secondly, it's when I want to avoid everyone. And I want to hide behind sermons because it makes everyone think that I love community. But I'm in charge of what I'm sharing with you. I'm not vulnerable right now. But I'm in a room with other people. They can ask me any question. Scares the mess out of me. Because I don't want to be vulnerable. But I have to pursue it. And then then lastly, uh, I just want them to remove the pain. Uh, Examples of that. I go through my iPhone photos, and I have about 30-something pictures of my dad that we use for the memorial service and the funeral. Every time I get to it, I just do that immediate scroll through, right? Can't delete them, but I just don't want to look at them. And I'm having to get into this habit of God. I just don't want to forget my dad, so I want to look at this picture, and if it causes me to grieve, it causes me nausea, I'm going to look, and I'm going to remember, he's, you've been good to me. You're walking with me in this. Please uphold me. I don't want to avoid any of this anymore. I don't just want to think about myself. Please, God, use this so somehow someone would see the gospel through the way I'm dealing with it. Please, God. And I am getting a D minus on this whole thing, but I'm fighting for it. And that's all this sermon is about that we would fight for what Paul declares to be good. So I just want to ask that we would together for a moment, just kind of like very simply, not some complex 20-minute prayer, maybe just like a very simple, what happened to simplicity, right? Just asking God, God, would you make me this kind of man and this kind of woman in the midst of things that are sour? Let's just ask him to do that. God, um, I can only imagine the kind of stories represented in this place. Um, I think about this amount of people and the diversity here. Some that grew up in church, some that did not. Socially different backgrounds, racially different backgrounds, spiritually different backgrounds. I think about the different home lives represented in these stands, I think about the different ages. I cannot even bend my mind around the kind of frustrations and cynicisms and doubts and struggles for fighting for faith that are here right now. I know my own, and I'm a mess, God. And all we're asking is we don't want to become these people who look like we have everything figured out. But God, we're saying we need you to keep pointing us to your word, to remind us of what's true, please. Because we are very convincing to ourselves. Please, God, don't let us become those kind of people.
don't let us be people who avoid this adopted family you've called us into. Please don't let us become those kind of people. And God, we do ask that you would bring healing, hope, remedy. And we also say, if you don't, we want to be the kind of people that trust you to the end. Would you bring other men and women, students, children that would get a glimpse of our imperfect faith, of our very splintered and broken steps in the midst of hardship, would you actually bring salvation because of it? Would you, would you call the prodigals, the, the ones who've been living in the faraway place, would you call them back home because somewhere along the way they were able to see or hear something unique in the way we're dealing with our hardship? I'm begging you, please give us that kind of stage. Give us that kind of stage. We love you. And we will just confess to you, we don't know how to do this. So we need you, Spirit of God, to lead us, to pastor us, to feed us with your word, and to uphold us. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.